Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. We are joined today by Milton Berg. He is the CEO and Director of Research at MB Advisors, which provides independent research with a macro, technical, and historical focus. Milton has been working in financial services since 1978, and he's held many different roles on the buy side. He has also worked with some legendary names, folks like Michael Steinhardt, George Soros, Stanley Druckenmiller, just to name a few. In this episode, we do a deep dive into technical analysis and Milton's approach, and I'm telling you, it is fascinating. I learned so much and I really, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, Milton focuses on turning point analysis, where he looks for turning point ends of trends. For example, he called the market bottom on June 16th of last year. On the day this episode was recorded, which was February 16th, Milton explained why February 2nd may have marked an important turning point in the markets suggesting a probable end to that uptrend and a correction, at least for the short term. He also shared that his firm is 100% short. Uh, He explained how they went from going leveraged long to just 100% long to flat and now 100% short, which is a dramatic change. I recommend for the folks who are listening to this to watch the video. There is a video on Spotify. There's also the YouTube channel. I will leave a link in the notes here to the YouTube channel. We use a lot of charts in this conversation. Milton puts on an incredible presentation. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Milton Berg, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Research at MB Advisors. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Milton. It's nice meeting you, Julia. I'm really excited to have you on the show, and I was kind of hoping maybe we could start, Milton, with a bit about your background. I want to hear, you know, how you got into the business and also how your process has evolved over the years. And I also understand you've worked with some legendary names in the business as well. Yes, well, my background in the business, I got into business back in 1978. Um, I had a background really in Talmudic studies. I, um, I felt that the stock market was a challenge. I originally got into the market as a basic Raymond Dodd fundamentalist doing strictly fundamental analysis. I found them competing with all the other fundamentalists, didn't give me much of an edge. And then somehow early in my career, I discovered there's something called market analysis, technical analysis, which I really took a strong liking to. I spent the last 30, 40 years developing my own uh, technical analysis process, my own market analysis process. Um, I did work with some of the greats. Also, I've learned from everybody in this business I've been in, in touch with. The, some of the greats and some of the not so greats. I learned from people's mistakes. I've learned from people's um, successes. So my vast experience really has taught me a lot. And um, I, I try to use it now in this new company. We started the company about 12 years ago. Basically, it's an institutional research firm. We have a very uh, a limited number of clients. We have about 300 clients. Um, mostly institutionals or, or um, family offices. And uh, our research is really very, very unique and, and, and uh, different than the type of research that's generally um, offered on Wall Street. Yeah. And when you bring up um, like technical analysis, you're right. You just pointed out that yours is very different from what is typically offered on Wall Street. I, yeah, well, I don't want you to have to give away everything, but could you kind of give us a well, peek into that? Basically, of- if something is obvious and everyone can see it on a chart, even if it works for a while, eventually it's not going to work. Like moving average crosses, seeing golden, golden ratios, um, breakouts, and so on and so forth. It's obvious on a chart. Everyone can see it. It's really highly unlikely that it's going to, going, to, going to work over the long term. What we look at is the underlying indicators. We've created over 30,000 market indicators. They don't all signal at all times, but we're looking for rarity of indicators. When they do signal, usually they're telling you something that's important. Some of the most of the indicators are, are truly data based. Some some indicators are chart based. Some indicators are psychological indicators. But I'll give you some idea uh, at, during this interview. Hopefully, you get some idea of what I do. We'd like to start though and speak about equities in general. There's an assumption that stocks do great over the long term. It's a very very false assumption because it's not stocks that do well. It's capitalism that does well over the long term. As companies turn socialist and companies get big government, the stock markets no longer do well. Prime example is Japan. 
the Japan stock market, Japan was a great country in the 1980s. The stock market peaked in 1989. In, in, in US dollar terms, Japan is down 25% since 1989. What does that tell you about stocks for the long term? Uh, another example is Italy. Um, Italy is uh, peaked in, in 2007 in US dollar terms, it's down 51%. In their own currency, it peaked in the year 2000, it's down 45%. So what does it tell you about stocks for the long term? Uh, another example is even Hong Kong. Hong Kong peaked in 2018, it's down 37%. Um, uh, Belgium peaked in, uh, Greece, peaked in uh, Greece peaked in 1999 in, in their own local currency, it's down 82%. So I think the point we have to make when we talk about the stock market, stock market is a great wealth builder, but it's only a wealth builder because of the background of a capitalist system. The more you get away from the capitalist system, the more likely that the stock market won't do as well in the future as it, as it has done in the past. And that's a very, very important note that I, I like to make uh, to start this interview. That is a really important note. I, I want to hear just a little bit more. You just made this case like, because you're right, there is kind of this like assumption like stocks do better for the long term. But you're saying like the performance, it aligns with... Um, I guess the values of like a capitalist system. A free, a free a market, free market capitalist, low taxation, small government system. Exactly. As governments get stronger, as people get complacent and ask for the government to do more and more for them, as governments increase taxation, it's less likely that the long-term stock market will do as well as it's done in the past. It's it's not as likely. Are you worried about um, the direction then that we're headed? Well, yes, I am worried. Um, you know, I've been in this business for a long time. Uh, when I started in the business, see, the United States was a creditor nation. In 1978, they were a creditor nation. Or maybe they just turned turned to a debtor nation. I don't know the exact date. But now we have trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. Uh, having trillions of dollars debt is not, not good for the long-term health of the country. Also, taxation. Capital capital should not be taxed. If you believe you're a capitalist, if, if, if Joe Biden can say we're a capitalist country or anyone here can say we're a capitalist country, number one, capital is not taxed because when you tax capital, you discourage capital creation. One of the greatest errors that uh, our country has made and many countries have made is taxing capital gains. Capital is used for the growth of the wealth of the country. Capital is not used for the growth of the wealth of the government. And another point of capital uh, taxing capital gains is there's something called money. There's big debates what money is. It's fiat money, United States currency. Some people think Bitcoin is money, it's currency. But there's something called natural money, where people will naturally exchange something they own for something else somebody else owns in, in a transaction. In the modern era, there's no reason to have government-controlled money. I could take my iPhone and go to a supermarket, and if I want to buy a Hershey bar, I'd be able to give a small fraction of my Apple share to buy the Hershey bar automatically. We have technology to do that. The only reason we can't do that is because capital gains are taxed. If I sell my Apple share, I pay tax on it. If you eliminated capital gains, you would eliminate the need for centralized currency and you'd have a far better capitalist free market system. That's just my view, it's never gonna happen. But in my understanding of economics and currency, that's exactly what should happen. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting point too. Um, I wanna flesh this out a bit more too, because you also, brought up like the indebtedness of our country. Like I actually just pulled up the US national debt clock well north of 31 trillion. Um, and then it also, I'm sure you've seen this website too. It shows you like how much we bring in, in tax revenue and whatnot. Um, do you have thoughts on the debt situation? And do you think that it will ever get resolved? Well, I think we have enough debt outstanding. No reason for any more debt. No reason to raise a debt ceiling. Uh, basically, you don't, the United States will not default if they don't raise the debt ceiling. They will default if they keep paying all of their uh, expenses other than the debt. The first thing the United States should do when they freeze the debt ceiling is pay is pay interest. They have the money to pay interest. Taxation covers interest uh, considerably. And then they should just cut the programs that we can no longer afford. So the United States is not in, in, in at risk at this time of, of going bankrupt, of defaulting. If they do default, it's a political decision. Because you can cut government spending on military, cut government spending, wherever you want to cut, and keep paying your interest on your debt. So... It's just a false, it's a false um, issue of us defaulting. We will not default even if we don't raise the debt ceiling. But I think we have enough debt outstanding. You see, what happens is debt grows. It's like a cancer. Uh, debt used to be 25% of the GDP, and now it's over 100% of the GDP. And if you look look at off-balance sheet debt and government guarantees, it's nearly 300% of the GDP. We can't continue this way. Now, um, and the only way to solve this problem is to reduce government spending. But, you know, both the Republicans and the Democrats have been spending over the years. I don't know if, ever, if we will ever resolve it, but at this point, we're all talking about 
potential default if you don't raise a debt ceiling, and that is just a false issue. You don't have to raise a debt ceiling, you will not default. But debt is, yes, most great countries in the world, economies of the world, have collapsed due to the um, the debts outstanding. And we hopefully, hopefully it could be resolved. I think with political will, it could be resolved. We're a great country. We're still a free country. Our tax receipts increase year after year after year, regardless of whether they have recessions or so on. And I think there's enough tax receipts to cover all the necessary expenses that government should go through. I think we should turn to the stock market, though, because that's really more exciting. We can definitely talk about the stock market. Um, I'll, I'll come back to this because I did take some notes and um, it, it is interesting to me, but I want to talk about um, kind of like your overall, and usually I start the conversation here, but I want to talk about your overall assessment of the markets right now. Okay. Before I talk about overall assessment of the market, there's a very important study we did. It did in, in 2015. You know, people think that what happened in the market in the past will happen in the future. Or they look at moving average crosses and they look at the changes the rates of change in various indices and, and various some types of indicators and try to project what the market will do in the future. I'm talking about technical analysts. I took the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 1900 to 1950. I took its daily mean daily return. I took a standard deviation of its daily return. I took its, its skew and its kurtosis. And we calculated what should the Dow do from 1950 to 2015 based on the statistics from 1900 to 1950. And we found in 10,000 observations, only about 15 observations, uh, uh, random observations outperformed the actual Dow. So the actual Dow actually did better than 10,000 random observations using statistics going back from 1900 to 1950. I don't know if I make myself clear, but the point is when my statistician did this work for me, he basically fell out of his chair. He couldn't believe that the, the current Dow has no resemblance to the previous Dow. So the point I like to make is there are technical indicators we use, there's market indicators we use. We always keep in mind that things change. What happened in the past will not necessarily happen in the future. I would like to point out, though, we redid the study using the inflation-adjusted Dow. And in the inflation-adjusted Dow, the study actually came out pretty well. The, the, the historical Dow did match the, the, uh, the actual Dow, the current Dow, which tells you that the, the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 and the elimination of the gold standard in, in 1970 uh, changed the nature of our, our economy and changed the nature of our, our of, uh, of how the stock market works. And anytime I, what I, we try to do when we analyze the stock market historically is adjust for inflation rather than just look at, at, at the data itself. We look at data just for inflation. And that's one of the tricks we use to give us better types of indicators. Current market, we were very, very bullish in June. We called the market bottom on June 16th. And believe it or not, we were correct. Now, that kind of strange thing to say. How can you say you're correct? The market sort of collapsed from June to October. But in reality, the market did not collapse from June to October. In the reality, the Russell 2000 bottomed on June 16th and never made a lower low. Even the S&P 500, which made a lower low in October, that low was only 2.45% below the low in June. So the, which is basically testing area. You know, you get 2.45% below a previous low. That's not a collapse. That's just a test of a previous low. So the reality is, if you remember June, June is the number one worried about the Federal Reserve raising rates, going to raise rates by three quarters of a percent, but she actually did on June 15th, the market bottom the following day. There was a question about the war in the Ukraine, and, and, and we saw a lot of signs of panic in markets and underlying, underlying panic in markets. So gaps to the downside, we saw spikes in put call ratios, we saw spikes in downside volume, which told us that the June 16th low is a significant low, and we're, we're sticking to that, that June 16th low is a significant low. In fact, there's a remarkable index, it's an it's a, it's a uh, ETF called the ITB, U.S. Home Construction ETF. Now, your home construction stocks should be most affected by interest rates, you'd think so. So with interest rates going up, mortgage rates going up from 5.9% in June, to 6.8% currently, it actually got above seven, you think that home construction stocks should be the worst industry. The reality is that home construction stocks from the June low to the peak on February 2nd of this year gained 53.89%, in spite of the fact that supposedly the Federal Reserve was tightening and supposedly interest rates were rising. Well, they were rising. But the fact that the Federal Reserve raises rates doesn't mean they're tightening. The fact that federal raised rates means they're coming from an extremely loose liquid monetary condition and turning towards a tightening. But you really can't know when the situation is tight, when financial conditions are tight. I believe that financial conditions were not yet tight, although the Fed was raising rates. I think the 10 or 12 years of quantitative easing and zero interest rates 
uh, injected a, a much liquidity in the system. I think it had not been drained by June 16th. I think despite the fact that the Fed was raising rates, it had not been drained. And that's why we saw this remarkable bull run in, uh, for example, home construction stocks. That's why we saw the, the Russell bottom on June 16th. That's why the worst the S&P could do after June 16th, despite the fact that long-term rates uh, increased dramatically and short-term rates increased dramatically, the worst it could do is decline 2.45% below its June low is because there's still excess liquidity in the system. So therefore, we call it, we said the bull market began in June and we, there was a test in October. We, we had many, many buy indicators that we got off the October lows. And we were really very, very bullish. We were projecting an SP 500 46.50 by November of this year, basically saying if, uh, if the final low in the SP was in was October October 12th, typical bull market gains 30% within the first 12 months. So 30% above that was about 46.50. That's why I had a simple projection of 46.50. So, I, 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 Julia, I can give you some ideas of the kind of technical indicators we saw off the October low. I'll give you uh, maybe two or three if that would be interesting. But exactly what we saw then and how things have changed since then. Yeah. For example, the S&P bottomed on September 30th and it rallied for a number of days, sharp rally, and made a lower low on October 12th, 0.24% below the September 30th low. But on October 3rd, it was an update. You saw a tremendous volume in the stocks that declined for the day. On balance, the S&P was up on the day on October 3rd, but there was tremendous volume in the stocks that were down for the day. Actually, there was panic volume as measured by a trend above four. Now, we looked at any time in history, any time in history, going back to, uh, we have the data going back to 1970, 1970, any time trend was above four. Trend was basically, to just say, have your views, what that means is, roughly means it's four times as many stocks of uh, volume on the downside than you'd expect relative to the ratio of up stocks to down stocks. Anyway, it's sign of panic selling into the stocks that are down on the day. Uh, any... Over the past, the median gain over the next 12, within the next 12 months is 21.84%. It happened 10 times in the past. This is one of the indicators we use. There's only one failure where the market did not uh, uh, continue to bull move. So nine out of 10 times, this is an indicator of a panic at a low. So that's one of the reasons we turned bullish. Uh, another very simple indicator we use on October 25th, which is about uh, 13 calendar days past the low. Uh, the SP 500 generated a third day in 10 in which the stock, volume in upside stocks were at least nine times as much as volume in the downside stocks. Now, there's nothing to do with fundamentals and nothing to do with earnings. It basically has to do with supply and demand and the willingness of investors to buy stocks as opposed to sell stocks. Anyway, we got three, three times, third time in 10 days. Uh, the uh, median return over the next 12 months each time this happened was 22.52%. It's happened 10 times in the past. And there was never a, a down year. There was never a, a bear market following this. You always had a gain. So uh, that's there, the second kind of thing we'll look at. Basic technical types of indicators that we look at. Um, and um, uh, so we really were very, very bullish off the October lows. We were telling our clients to go long. We, we ourselves went leveraged long. We had a, a nice return from October until, until early February. And that's uh, that's our view. Everyone's talking about breath rust. You know, I think you've heard the many many technologists talk about a breath rust. They got it in January. We got our first breath rust, actually on um, on um, we got in October. We got a breath rust on October twenty eighth. Uh, we got a, 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 a second breath rust in January. But our, our breath rust using different data took place October twenty eighth. And again, that breath rust leads to. A gain of 20.16%, a median gain of 20.16% within 12 months. So we had many, many reasons to be bullish. This is to, on a technical basis. On a fundamental basis, as we said, the reason we were bullish, now people say, how can you be bullish is the inverted yield curve? Well, how can you be bullish Fed's raising rates? How can you be bullish the um, um, uh, long-term rates are moving up? How can you be bullish will be a recession in, uh, in 2023? Well, I found, I tried to ignore the... Uh, so-called fundamental people uh, um, questions because economists have difficulty um, uh, predicting recessions. How could a typical investor out there know, predict will be a recession in 2023? Yield curve, there's no really logical reason for a yield curve to, to cause, or inverted yield curve to cause a recession unless the, the banks have to borrow on, on the short term and lend on the long term and there's a, there's a, there's a credit, there's, a, there's a, a, a difficulty in the spread. But the banks are doing quite well during this so-called inverted yield curve crisis. 
And there's a, there's a precedent for an inverted yield curve not to cause a recession. That was from 1965 to 1967. You got a, a yield curve as inverted as today, and it did not fall by recession. By the way, that's why analysts, when they give you yield curve analysis, they start in 1970, because they start in 1960, you'd see that yield curves don't always, inverted yield don't always lead to recessions. So we just said there's liquidity in the system. The market is telling me it's time to buy. We're long the market, and um, and uh, the inverted yield curve wasn't a problem. I thought we may have had a slowdown already in 2022, not a recession. The slowdown was enough to cause the SP to decline 25%. It slowed that. We're coming out of the slowdown, obviously, from the data we've seen in January and, and, and February. So uh, we, we were long. Now, I would point out that I, I'm still, based on the indicators we had in October, November, December, and January, I still have to say we're bullish for the year of 2023, and I still maintain my projection of 46.50 in the S&P. However, the analysis we do, we call it turning point analysis. In other words, many analysts use, you know, 100-day moving averages and 200-day moving averages and long-term long uh, patterns. But our, our edge is not to use long-term patterns at all. We've analyzed all market turning points of 7% or greater going back to 1928 in the S&P 500. And we've identified characteristics that occur at market turning points. So February 2nd, it looks to us, was a market turning point. Many, many strange things happened in late January and early February that are suggestive of, at, at the minimum, a strong correction, or possibly even that this great bull market that began in, in June, you remember 50 plus 50% return in the housing stocks, 20% uh, uh, return off the NASDAQ in, into the August highs and so on. We believe that uh, it's possible that uh, we get a correction, but it, there's a slight probability that the, this bull move that I thought will last for quite a long time may be ended on February 2nd. So what happened on February 2nd? Number one, we all know of the Holbert uh, Financial Digest, Holbert tracks sentiment of newsletters. And... On, um, on February 2nd, actually, on, on, uh, it started on January 26th, January 30th, February 1st, and February 2nd, the Holbert Financial Digest NASDAQ sentiment was at a six-month high. Now, a six-month high doesn't tell you much because it's, it's very often it's at a six-month high, the market is higher. However, during bear markets, during bear markets, a six-month high has called the tops of bear market rallies. It called the top in, in November of 2001. They call the top in November of 2002. They call the top in August of 2008. And it's possible it called it, it's possibly calling a top right here. So that's a technical reason to suggest that the fact that, that the newsletter writers have turned so bullish, even though the NASDAQ is no way near where it was in August of this year. The NASDAQ has gained off the October lows, off the December lows, but it has not exceeded its highs of August of this year. Yet newsletter newsletter writers are very, very bullish. That's a reason to be negative on the on on the market. That's just an external indicator. External indicator means we're not looking at the market itself. We're looking at how people interpret the market, newsletter writers. It's not the greatest indicator, but, but we have discovered uh, where it's configured currently is where bear market rally tops end. However, we also look at the unweighted NDX. Now, everyone looks at the NDX, the NASDAQ 100. It's an amazing index with amazing, great uh, technologically advanced companies, uh, very high um, market caps in some of these companies these 100 companies, but we look at an unweighted NDX indicate, index. In other words, each stock in the NDX is equal weighted. So Apple will have the same weighting as a Tesla or as one of the other smaller companies in the index. And the NASDAQ, on February 2nd, got within a quarter of a percent of its August high. The NASDAQ went, uh, unweighted. So although NDX itself, and let me give you the exact numbers so you'll see the difference. NDX, you don't want it. I'll get on my screen and give you the number. The NDX itself, at the February second, at its February second recovery high, was six point three two percent below its August sixteenth high. But the equal weighted NDX was only less than a quarter percent below its August sixteenth high. This constitutes a double top. Now, a double top itself, I say, if something is so obvious and everyone can see it. It usually doesn't work. Now, first of all, not too many people look at the equal weighted NDX. Not everybody sees it. But secondly, besides having a double top, it also gapped up into that day. It was the only gap up day in the NDX, equal weighted NDX, 
since the December lows. Gaps is a sign of panic buying. So you have panic buying into February 2nd into a double top and the market immediately reversed lower. That's a reason to be negative on the, uh, on the NDX. As I said, the um, US Home Construction ETF gained nearly 11% in the three days into February 2nd. Now it's kind of strange. When the stocks were cheap in June, you didn't see three-day returns of, of nearly 11%. All of a sudden, after the index is up more than 50%, you see a three-day gain of more than uh, nearly 11% after the index is already up more than 50%. So this is not rational buying. This is telling you that is irrational, either irrational long buying or irrational short covering by those who are caught short, which often takes place at the top. And that index also that index also gapped into the highs. Another reason to say what happens in February 2nd is it, it, it gives, you, gives you signs at the top. Also, three-day volume into February 2nd, three-day volume of the S&P 100 index, which is the OEX, was greatest in more than 500 days. And I have to ask yourself, why all of a sudden, on February 2nd, after the market is up some 20% or some index is up 50%, why would all of a sudden see three days of high volume? Because people who are short or mm -hmm. underinvested decided we got to get in now. And this is usually doesn't take place when it's time to buy stocks. It usually takes place when it's time to sell stocks. So besides the equity market, silver broke down in early February. Gold broke down in early February. Gold mining stocks broke down in early, Fe in early February. China broke down in early February. And um, uh, stocks, we're, sure, we're, short, we're recommending to be short the real estate ETF. That, that also spiked up into February 2nd and reversed. We're, the bond spiked up and reversed. The Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index ETF AGG also spiked in February 2nd and reversed. So something happened on February 2nd. Now, I, 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 you might know what it is. It has to do with the Fed, but I don't care what it is. I just care what the market is telling me. If I start worrying what the Fed is, the reason for it, I, I'll get as confused as everybody else. I just know something happened on February 2nd that tells me it's the potential. This might be the end of this bear market, of this rally. It might be the end of the move. At the minimum, we'll have a correction. And at the maximum, maybe we get back to the lows or below the lows. So these are the kind of things we look at. We share it with our clients. And um, uh, 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 the mid-cap, you know, there's many other uh, things I could talk about besides the gaps. The mid-cap had what's called a, a, a um, bull trap reversal. It actually exceeded its August high and immediately reversed below it. So these are the kind of things we look at. And these are the reasons we believe that um, maybe, maybe February 2nd was a, a long-term top at least it's a short-term top. We were long, leveraged long into February 2nd. About three days or four days after that indicators turned, we got out of our longs, and now we're 100% short for our clients. We're short a basket of ETFs, and we chose baskets based on the fact that these are, these are baskets that spiked into the high and reversed down. So we're short uh, the, the, the GDX. We're short the, 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 a, bond, a bond ETF. We're short the Qs. We're short silver. We're short the Vanguard Reed ETF. We're short the uh, the uh, emerging market uh, ETF as well as well as Spider Technology. Basically balanced amongst them. Be 100% short. We don't know if we'll be right. We're not right 100% of the time. We're not even right 90% of the time. Probably not even right 80% of the time. But we're disciplined enough to recognize when the market may be at a turning point, and uh, we, we're willing to pull the trigger. We're willing to get out for wrong. But the way I see it is a good bottom in June. No one recognized it. They finally recognized it in February. They recognized in February the market bottom in June or maybe October. They all panicked to get in. The Fed is still tightening. Maybe by now the liquidity that built up over the last 12 years is starting to be drained. They are doing quantitative tightening. They are raising rates. And maybe the reason the market held up so well until now was because there was liquidity and maybe now the liquidity is draining. But in any event, we don't really care about the fundamental background. We care that the market was telling us that there'll be a rally and it may be telling us that the rally ended on February 2nd. Okay, that that was incredible. Um, and that's why I love this show because you can take as long as you want to answer. Just real quick though, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Um, February second, like a, a um, did you say a short term top? Did I mishear that? You no, know, yeah, no, no, short term top. Well, you, you really currently, I mean, anyone who looks at the chart and the market knows where the market peaked on February second. Okay. But I'm trying to point that it's not just that the market made a high and it's pulling back. That high was a, a technically significant high. Three-day volume of the NDX was greatest in over a year. Three-day volume of the OEX is greatest in 500 days. Spikes to the upside, gaps to the upside, followed by gaps to the downside. These things are not random. You see, many, many of the indicators that, that most technical analysts look at, the most retail investors look at, are random events. 
a crossing of a moving average, a, a weak day when the, when the news is positive or a, a, a strong day when the news is negative. You know, these are just random events. On a daily basis, the market is random. We're seeking to not run, not random in the case. What was not random was the fact that the, um, for example, the, um, the the housing stock had its greatest three-day run off its lows after having up 50%. Secondly, you had highest volume uh, off the lows. Secondly, you had gaps to the upside and reversals. These are things that are not random. These are that take place at tops. These things take place at turning points. And again, we specialize in what we call turning point analysis, and we're recognizing February 2nd as a potential turning point. So far, it's working out well now. And I am saying, since the fundamental background is such, interest rates are still rallying, Fed is still raising rates, there's still quantitative tightening, since this is a fundamental background, and since the um, the uh, action in February 2nd, after such a long run, is suggestive of a top, it may be that this will be the final top in this bull market that we had, even though it's not giving the traditional gains you see in a bull market. So you might call it a bear market rally if you'd like to, if we're going to make lower lows. I don't want to label it. I just want to say at this point, February 2nd top looks like an important top. We're now short. We don't know whether we'll get down to new lows. We don't know if we make lower lows. We don't know if it'll be simply a five, seven, eight, ten percent correction. We have no idea at this point. But hopefully, when the low comes, when the time to buy comes, we'll see indicators telling us it's a time to buy. Now, I'm only giving you half of the story, really. There's, there's more to this, which we'll get in a moment. But uh, but that's the answer. Yes, it's possibly a final top of this bull market. Maybe it's the final top of a bear market rally, or maybe it's just a, a little high before corrective low takes place. Those are the three options. We don't have to have the. We don't have to know at this point what the market's going to do. We just have to know that we have the tools to tell us when, when it's time to buy and when it's time to sell. That's really what we offer our clients. We don't. Our projections are based on history, market history, but our our indicators really we have indicators telling us when to buy and when to sell. They are unique indicators. They are, I call them compact indicators, not indicators that use broad, broad, broad movements in markets. And they're indicators most people don't know about. I mean, our clients know about it. Sometimes I'm very cryptic with my clients as well. I don't like to give away the secret, secret sauce. I don't always tell them exactly what's in the indicator, but at least they know what's, what's involved, whether it's a momentum indicator, whether it's a lack of momentum, whether it's a breath indicator, uh, whether it's a, a, a market reaction um, uh, to a previous day's trade, you know, whether it's a volume indicator, they know that, but they don't always know the exact configuration of, of, the, of the assets, of the indicators we've created. Got it. Okay. Um, so it's a turning point. You look at turning, you see just, outline there, turning point analysis. Exactly. What, where do you think we're headed from here? Because I, I heard earlier, um, you were talking about the, um, I want to make sure I get this right. Like maybe this was 2022. I'm just looking at my notes, but when you said you had a target of, uh, 4650. Yes. Based on the fact that we believed in October that that was a final low in the SP 500 and the, 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 the June low was a final low in the Russell. We know that the typical bull market gains 30% within the first 12 months. And I think if you take the lows, the lows of the lows of uh, of, uh, of uh, October, the low of October was, uh, and the S&P was, uh, uh, let's say roughly uh, 35.77. Like 35.77, you get 30%. You get to 46.50 exactly. That's where that's the magic for 46.50 projection. It's no real magic, but there is some magic to this because we've we've identified 24 bull moves, not necessarily bull markets. We've identified 24 bull moves, which were identified by our turning point indicators. 24 bull moves since some um, since some um, 19 um, since 1970, and we've tracked. Let me try to get the, let me try to get this uh, chart right here. Find it. Here it is. 24 bull moves since 1970. The median gain within 12 months is 33.35%. As of yesterday's close, it was 87 days since the low in the in, on October 12th in the SP 500. Through day 87, the SP gained 14.36%. In other words, let's assume a bull market began on October 12th. And let's assume it's going to follow through for the year and, and have a, a median return of 30% plus. By day 87, it's 14.36%. Is that typical or not typical? Well, the median gain within within 87 at, at day 87 is 20.54%. We're at 14.36. We're below the median gain, but there have been many, many bull markets that did not gain as much as uh, as uh, as 14%. For example, uh, 
The um, the uh, 2002 bull market was only up 5% by day 87. The 1999 bull market was only up 8% by day 87. The uh, 1984 uh, bull market was only up 11.99% by day 87. 1978 was only up 9%. 1962 was only up 6.5%. And 1957 was only up 4.98%. So we're, we're, we're still tracking the action the market would track if we'd be in a bull market. So I'm not dissing the idea that we're in a bull market. I'm just saying February 2nd gave me some amazing statistics to suggest that it's a top. One statistic I forgot to mention was the fact that hedge funds had the second greatest short covering day in history on February 2nd, into February 2nd, maybe not the exact day, maybe the two or three day reading, but these are the kind of things that take place at turning points. And since the market has rallied significantly, this turning point is not an upside turning point. If it's going to be a turning point, it's going to be a downside turning point, especially since you had gaps to the upside and gaps to the downside, which, you know, it's very difficult to go through these things on a video blog. I just want to give you some idea of the kind of things we look at, the kinds that I've been looking at, how fascinating market analysis is, how important it is to have indicators that other people aren't looking at, how important it is to be able to change your mind, because we're really pound the table bulls. We were about 175% long in, into February. And now we're 100% short. That's a, a dramatic change. It didn't change in one day. We went from 100, went from leveraged long to just 100% long. But then we went to flat, and then we went to 100% short. So it took about four days of trading. But that's our recommendation. That's what we trade for ourselves, and that's what we're doing. And uh, hopefully it's, it's working out. And hopefully, uh, if we're wrong, we'll cat, we'll get out quickly. And if we're right, we'll catch the low, whether the low is 5% below where we are now, whether the low is 40% uh, below where we are now. We have no idea. Hopefully, we'll catch the low. Yeah, I guess if you had to like sum up like your, um, I guess your your uh, are you are you are you bearish? <laughs> okay, this is a story. To, like, I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna I'm gonna contextualize if I'm bearish or bullish. Number one, I'm very bearish in the bond market long term. Mm -hmm. Long term, I'm very. We, we had a we had an amazing, amazing thirty year bull market in bonds. More than thirty years. The, the bull market began in 1981 with yields above fifteen percent in the thirty year. It ended in March of 2000 with yields below 1% in the 30 year. That was an amazing, amazing bull market in bonds. In fact, people don't realize this. The bull market in bonds was greater than the bull market in stocks. Now, how is that possible? Because, you know, bonds are, um, bonds, uh, you don't have to buy a bond and take the coupon. You can buy a zero coupon bond. And Gary Schilling did a study. And we did it, we, we, we've um, duplicated the study. If you bought bonds in 1981 uh, and you bought the 30 year bond and a zero coupon bond and you rolled it every year, in other words, you bought a new 30, when it's down to 29 years left, you bought another 30 year uh, zero coupon bond. By the time bonds peaked in, in March of 2000, you were up over 18% per annum, far greater than the S&P over that period. So bonds actually outperformed stocks. But I made another point. I made this point you know, many times. I actually made it on, also in a public interview. Is I believe one of the reasons we had the great bull market in, in the S&P 500 from 1982 to, uh, to 2023, 2021 or 22, it's not simply because the United States economy did well. It's not simply because we had a free market. It's not simply because we, did, we had great technology advances in the United States, we didn't, which we did not have worldwide. It's also because you had a major bull market in bonds goosing the stock market. If you're going to have a bull market in bonds, the discount rate for stocks decreases. As the discount rate decreases, the value of a stock increases exponentially. So we believe one of the reasons for the great bull market in stocks was because you had a great bull market in bonds. We no longer think it's possible to have a great bull market in bonds. I mean, you went from 15% to less than 1%. You know, you, that just can't happen again unless you get back to 15%. So we think that even if bond markets are flat, it won't be goosing stocks. If, stock, if the bond market declines over the long term, which we think is quite possible if, if they don't get inflation under control, then it certainly will be a negative for the stock market. So that's one of the backgrounds where I, I can't say I'm as long-term bullish for the stock market now as someone should have been in 1982 or someone should have been in, uh, in 19, 1932. 1932 was a great, probably the best time to buy stocks during the Great Depression, 1932. Uh, people also say, how can you buy stocks if you're in a recession? The best time to buy stocks is in a recession, contrary to what people normally would assume. You buy stocks after they've already discounted the recession and they're coming back. Um, we believe that the 30% decline in NASDAQ, 25% decline in the S&P discounted a recession or maybe discounted a slowdown. We thought that the great bull market beginning, you know, with a typical 30% gain. Maybe we're wrong about that. This February 2nd action tells you maybe I was wrong about that. Now, how could I be wrong? I asked myself, Milton Burke, how could you be wrong? You're telling your clients there's a bull market. You had all this evidence. 
We had uh, nearly 60 positive indicators from October through through January telling you the bull market. Well, why would you think you're wrong? If you're wrong, your whole system is wrong. Your whole methodology is wrong. Well, there's two answers to that question. Number one is we only deal in probabilities. We're never right. We're only, we're only probably right. We're never certainly right. We're only probably right. We only deal in probabilities. So if, the, if, 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 if we, we just hit a bear market uh, rally peak in February, I'll say we were right about the trend until February, but we were wrong about the long-term trend that it's a bull market leading for the next, you know, for the next 12 months or so. That's number one. However, I pointed out to my clients in a special report that I wrote in, in January that there were seven, I actually listed 11, but for you, for this for this report, I think I only sent you seven. There are seven indicators that were missing at the latest lows, at the June lows, at the October lows, and at the December lows in NASDAQ. There were seven major indicators that normally signal at the bottom of a bear market that did not signal. And I, if you don't mind, I'll tell you what the seven are. They're very, very simple. Signal number one missing, volume. We look at 90-day volume in the New York Stock Exchange relative to five-day volume. In other words, we're looking for a turning point, strong five-day volume relative to 90-day volume. This took place at bottoms in 1975, 1978, 1982, 1987, 1991, 2002, 2011, and the 2020 we take the five-day volume of the New York Stock Exchange, but you look at the volume on stocks that are up on the day, on a five-day period, relative to the total volume, and you should get a ratio of 50%. In other words, it should be two to one. It should be 50% of the volume on a five-day basis relative to total volume should be on the on stocks that are up. Now, that took place early in bull markets in 1970, 1982, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2019, 2020. Did not take place in June, did not take place in October, did not take place in December, which is something else is missing. The surge in upside, five-day upside volume in the New York Stock Exchange. Now, to make me clear, we had a surge in one-day upside volume, which is fine. But you need a surge in five-day upside volume to confirm a bull market low and a bear market low. We did not get that. Missing signal number three. Five-day rate of change. This is one of my favorite signals for whatever reason. I mean, I don't know why it's favored. Maybe it's one of my earliest discovered signals. And that is that most bull markets begin with a, a five-day surge to the upside. And that is a, that's a, doesn't necessarily take place on the first five days off the bull market low. It generally takes place within the first 15 days off a low. So, for example, you want the SP 500 to have a five-day gain or five-day rate of change of 7.4%. If it, that did not happen... There's something wrong with this new bull move. Now, you saw this off the lows. Of course, it started in 1929, it started in 1932. I'm starting in 1957 when the S&P became a, a 500 stock index. Prior to that, it was a 90 stock index. So we do most of our analysis beginning in, 19, in 1970, 1957. Okay, so you saw off the bear market low in 62. You saw off the bear market low in 1970, 1974, 1982, 1984, 1987, is basically the number of new highs. There are 505 stocks in the SP 500. Used to be 500. There's now 505 for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't know why they did that. There are 505 stocks in the SP 500. And we look at how many stocks are making 60-day highs. Now we don't look at the absolute number. We look at the 60-day new highs relative to the total issues and number of new lows. We have our own ratio. What the ratio is not important, but we'll look at 60-day new highs relative to the lows and relative to the total issues of not making highs. And the, 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 the target is 30%. You want 30% of those we're looking at making new highs, 60-day highs. And that took place in the 82 low, 91 low, 2003 low, 2009, 2010, 2020. And it did not take place after, at the current low. But bull market missing signal number four. Number five is missing. 
this is very strange because this is an obvious one that most people do look at. Most other technici technicians do look at. I'm surprised no one talked about this. Most significant bear markets bottom after at least 90% of the stocks in the SP 500 are trading below the 200 day moving average. At least 90%. We never got that reading. We didn't get it in June. We didn't get it. We are close to it, but we didn't get it in June. We didn't get it in October. We got it in 1974, we got it in 1982, we got it in 2002, we got it in 2009, we got it in 2011, 2018, 2020. It hasn't happened. So although I had many signs of oversold in June and in October, we did not get this sign of oversold. This is a very common sign of oversold. This is a kind of oversold that is so common at bear market lows. It's strange that we haven't seen it, if not for the fact that maybe, 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 we did not have a final bear market low. Maybe we were still in a bear market. And we saw a bear market rally and finally falling on February 2nd when all the hedge funds and all the retail investors are finally convinced we're in a new bull market. Maybe that's where the market turns lower. Missing signal number six. People look at the 10-day breath rush. That's nice. It's easy. Everyone follows you. I see on Twitter, everyone's throwing 10-day breath rush, 10-day. Well, we said, well, if everyone's in a 10-day, there got to be another breath rush we can look at that people don't look at. So we created the seven-day breath rush. And our ratio for seven-day breath rush and the S&P is 2.5 to 1. If it's 2.5 times as many up stocks as down stocks, and the S&P 500, excuse me, that ratio is not, the ratio is 2.76. I got the wrong number. 2.76 to 1. So this signaled at bull markets in 1974, 
They ignored the Federal Reserve raising rates. Why? Because raising rates is not tightening. Raising rates is just getting back to normal. We don't know what the normal interest rates would be unless we had a free market. Unfortunately, since we have central banks all over the world, there's no way to know what the natural interest rate should be. For all we know, with the current inflation rate, the natural short-term interest rate should be 10% or 9%. We don't know because short-term rates are adjusted by the Fed. So maybe when the Fed raises rates to 4.5% and everyone says, wow, they're tightening, they're tightening, maybe they're just they're still loose and just moving towards tightening. So I would say that the fact that the market did so well from June to now tells you that the tightening was not really tightening. It was just trying to turn towards normalcy. And maybe now they are actually tightening. And maybe now the market's finally going to get a bear market. Maybe what we saw currently was just a correction within a long-term bull market. And the real decline begins now. You know, we have some people out there. I don't want to mention names. There are some very long-term permanent bears, very intelligent people who said we'll have at least a 65% decline from the peak in 2022 in January to the bear market line. I mean, there's, that's, that, there's a lot to go from there. And you're talking about 65%. They're going to go roughly to, uh, you're going to get down to, let me do that again. Get you down to uh, 1,600 in the S&P. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to say it will happen. It could happen. The Fed tightens and then over tightens. We don't know. We just know we, we follow what the market's telling us. Got it. I want to bring up um, another uh, topic with you. This tends to be pretty popular with this audience. I would love to hear your thoughts on gold. If you have any sort of outlook there, or just your general thoughts on okay. gold. This is the background. I manage the, the United States' largest gold equity fund at Oppenheimer in the late 1980s. So I am very familiar with gold. I discovered there's no magic to gold. Gold is just a great, great inflation hedge. But there's no mystical magic to gold. But since gold doesn't deteriorate, you can have gold, you know, you can have gold that's 2,000 years old and it, would, it won't lose any value due to time. If you built a house in 2,000 years ago, you know, by, by now, even though inflation should take the price of the house up, it's now probably destroyed and collapsed because time destroys assets. So an asset that's not destroyed by time, by definition, will hold its value over the long term because it hasn't changed. So what gold has is it's an asset that by definition will retain its value during inflation because inflation raises the value of everything in nominal terms. So gold is really, there's no match to gold. If you look historically, basically what gold has done is slightly outperformed inflation over the long, 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 long term. The way I measure gold, and I'm very careful about this, is I measure based on um, how much gold does it take, not to buy a suit of clothing, because due to productivity, it's much more efficient making a suit of clothing today than it was in the 1800s. And you certainly can't say how much gold it takes to buy an iPhone, because no iPhones existed 100, 200 years ago. But how much gold does it take for manual labor? If you want any any type of manual labor, and basically you find that gold has held its value. If you want to hire laborers, uh, the same same fraction of an ounce of gold it took to hire a laborer in, in 1750 will allow you to hire a laborer today. Because that really hasn't changed. So gold basically is no magic to gold. Gold is basically a commodity, but it keeps its value. Everything, if in theory, should keep its value. Diamonds should keep their value, and diamonds also don't deteriorate. So. Gold is a great inflation edge, but since gold has some beauty to it, and since gold is a commodity, gold fluctuates. Sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. But many people don't realize this, that during there was a, the, the, S, the CPI uh, gained 100% from 1980 to 2001. The CPI doubled and gold was cut in half. Gold peaked at 850 in 1980 and bottomed at 250 in, 19, in 2001. While well, CPI doubled, so gold was actually cut in quarter in real terms. So although gold is a very long-term, a long-term inflation hedge, you got to buy it when it's cheap relative inflation and sell it when it's expensive relative inflation if you want to sell it at all. If you're never going to sell it, you want to keep it for yourself and for your heirs, you want to buy it when it's cheap and just hold on to it because it's going to maintain its value over the long term. It won't go bankrupt. It won't deteriorate. It won't fall apart and so on and so forth. It won't oxidize and so on and so forth. So that's what I think about gold. As far as trading gold, though, since gold trades emotionally, because people think there's a mystical magic in gold, since it trades emotionally, we have indicators that were built to track um, to track uh, uh, movements in gold. More importantly, we have indicators that are built to track movements in Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is the most imaginary asset there is. Bitcoin has absolutely no intrinsic value. Never in the history of the world has there been anything comparable to Bitcoin, where people pay money for just a, a fiction. 
And therefore, Bitcoin trades on psychology and trades on sentiment. And we've built models that to uh, that, that actually track the, the movement of Bitcoin. And I, I, I did send you the chart. I, I don't want to give much away about how it works, but basically we have, uh, we have, uh, uh, I'll give you some example. Well, we, I don't believe in Bitcoin. I believe in gold. It's a real commodity. Bitcoin is just a fiction. But it does trade, so it means it trades on psychology and it trades on on on, uh, on, on are just people willing to throw the money at something that thing will go up in price, and therefore it's uh, we wouldn't recommend it as a long term investment. But if someone wants to trade it, we can give some advice on how to trade Bitcoin. We we do tell our clients where we think Bitcoin's at a high, where we think that's a low, but we never recommend it as a trade. We never trade it for our own account either. Specifically, um, what is it's interesting. Like, what does Bitcoin signal to you? I know the price has been, well, I guess it's a little bit off today, but like it's been moving up um, more recently. What does that signal like? Is it like an uptick in liquidity or like, well, I, I yeah. would love to hear more on that. Okay. Well, Bitcoin was one of the assets that actually turned down, let me see, let me see. at the February, February 2nd peak. Bitcoin had a peak on February 2nd. Let me do this right. Bitcoin also had a peak on February 2nd, like the equity assets, like other assets did, like gold, you know, equity assets, quickly declined 11% and they rallied back up to a high. It looked like it's going to break out. We have no, uh, we're neutral on Bitcoin at this point for the short term. We have no indicator telling you to buy or sell at the short term, except we thought that Bitcoin will peak along with the other assets, which says the, the equities peak, peak, the housing stocks peaked, and gold collapsed, and silver collapsed. We thought Bitcoin will continue with downtrend somehow. When it got above that February 2nd high, there was some panic buying and people saying now it's time to buy. I personally am neutral on Bitcoin at this point. If someone had to take a trade at this time, they had to take a trade at this time, I'd say um, take a small trade and expect it to go in the direction of the stock market, which should be down. But I have not much more to say at Bitcoin at this time, other than the fact that it did peak on February 2nd. We thought that might be that might be a final peak. I mean, it had gained, I have this chart here, it had gained 60.77%. No, that's not that's not Bitcoin. Hold on a second. It had gained 63.05 percent from my November 22nd when we recommended it until it's uh, February 16th high two days ago, 63 percent. But we were to tell people get out on February 2nd, so the, the gain wouldn't have been that much, but it'd been pretty significant, nearly nearly uh, 55 percent. But now at this point, though, we don't um, we don't have any view on Bitcoin other than the fact that we probably probably picked it should have peaked along with the other assets if we're right. That the Fed liquidity is, the Fed is beginning to tighten, and the market is starting to react uh, significantly to the Fed tightening. Yeah, uh, Bitcoin. I don't understand Bitcoin. I, no one has ever been able to explain it to me. They, they give me books to read. The books make absolutely no sense. The only analog to Bitcoin history was some island someplace in the Pacific where they people would would uh, use these big rocks, big stones with holes in the middle, to um, to uh, uh, ledger. Um, uh, marriages and uh, dowries and so on that has nothing to do with Bitcoin at all. That was just a way of, of saying you owe me money. It was on a ledger. You owe me something and you have to pay it back. It didn't pay back with the coin. The coin is never used as a, as its value. It's, it's used as a ledger. But people, if it's a ledger, it, 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 any, it can have any value. You know, it, you know this, this coin re represents this, this size dowry. The next one represents a different size dowry. And it's just a way of remembering it, the way of, 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 of securing um, in your memory, exactly what took place. Bitcoin is an asset. It's not an asset. Bitcoin is a is a fiction with no intrinsic value. It's not a currency, even by fiat. The government, no one government has declared it a currency. No government has said you could pay your taxes in Bitcoin. Bitcoin has no actual uh, standard of stable value, um, and there's no way to assess independent of its market price. No way to assess what its value is or what its value should be. An ounce of gold, you could assess what its value is or should be based on. It's uses in jewelry, it's uses in uh, technology. Why would companies that use in technology or why would jewelers be willing to pay for for, uh, for, for gold to, to make jewelry out of it? So you can assess its value. You can't assess the value to Bitcoin. It has absolutely no value. It's a fiction. It makes no sense. Um, uh, and it's probably just a, 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 uh, a, uh, a side effect of the liquidity that's been created for the last uh, more than a decade over the world People have money and they have no place to throw it, no place to put it, and they're going to basically speculating on this asset. Um, you could have you could have, you could have done the same thing with with paper cups if you wanted to, rather with Bitcoin. You could have set up a ledger with paper cups, have it in a vault someplace, and have everybody bidding up the paper cups, 
And that would be even better than Bitcoin, because at least it has some value. You could use a paper cup, you could take a drink in it. So I, I, I'm totally against Bitcoin, but it's a market, it trades, and therefore we're able to tell our clients at times when we think it's prone to gain, when it's prone to decline, despite the fact that there's really no historic precedent. The, the younger generation that set up Bitcoin don't understand what money is. You see, as I said earlier in this interview, there's something called natural money. If there be no governments, be no central banks, that doesn't mean there'll be no money. There'll be natural money, whether it's wampum, whether it's seashells, whether it's bicycles, whether it's candles. Historically, all of those things have been used as money. But it's natural money that people agree has some value. They're willing to trade for something else. And of course, gold and silver has been the best uh, uh, natural money. But nowadays, if not, if there be no central banks and there be no fiat currencies, there'd be many, many natural money today. Because now we have, you know, we have your iPhones. You have all my assets via my phone. I could take a, a portion of, of of anything and, and, and go to a store and buy, and buy it. And and the the rel its relative values will all be um, computerized. So. Bitcoin is not a Bitcoin is not a natural asset. It's not a natural currency. It's 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 a currency created in people's mind because they don't see what currencies are. You can't make a currency out of something that has no intrinsic value. You can't make a currency out of something that that has no no natural value. And people will argue, well, it's a natural value. People are trading it. Well, they're trading it, but they're not they're not uh, using it. Really, Bitcoin is not really being used in day to day transactions. So I don't. And if, it, if who would use it in a daily transaction due to its volatility? And of course, there's another X against Bitcoin. It's the same old story. The, the governments around the world tax capital gains. If you buy something with a Bitcoin, you have, you have to calculate what you bought the Bitcoin for and what you sold it for and pay a tax on it, which is kind of ridiculous. Capital should not be taxed, but unfortunately it is. That's another reason why Bitcoin can't be a great, a great uh, uh, currency as well. Yeah. That's my um, view. I know it's controversial. That's my view. Yeah. Well, I want to ask just one more question before I let you go. And it's more just... Um about the the analysis you do the technical analysis you do the various technical factors you look at if you had to like step back and pick one like one indicator you look at that's like, like the most unique or interesting what would it be and why oh wow well obviously there's no answer to that question i can't give it but i would say i would say that volume has always been a, a favorite indicator of mine, not just not, you know volume, because volume reflects people's propensity to buy and people's propensity to say to sell, people's willingness to buy and people's willingness to sell. Like for example, you know you had the great crash of 1987, the um, great crash of 1929. The market was down, you know, in 87 down 20 percent in one day, and 29 is down 20 percent in two days. But believe it or not volume at those lows was at a record, which tells you there are people willing to sell their stocks 20% lower than it was the day before. And not only people willing, there are so many people willing to sell so many stocks that volume was at a record. That's not understandable. It's understandable why there'd be a record volume of people willing to buy stocks that were worth 20% more the day before. But why are people willing to sell stocks? So volume tells you a lot about psychology. It tells you about market action and many trading points indicated that we use have some sort of volume associated, whether it's total volume, upside volume, downside volume, lack of volume, and so on and so forth. So I have to say, if, if someone's going to start getting into this business and wants to look at something that makes sense, don't look at moving average crosses, and don't look at momentum, and don't look at trends, and don't look at the you know, uptrends and downtrends. Just start out with volume. Well, that's what we do, because we look at turning points. If you're just trying to catch long-term trends, maybe volume doesn't help you much, but we don't try to catch long-term trends. We try to get into a trend early and get out when the trend ends. And we look at what happens from the from the bottom to the top is basically random action, unless indicators give us some reason to think it's not random. In other words, the market will go up 30% in the year, but between the 0% to the 30%, the fluctuations are basically random in our opinion. Got it. Well, Milton, um, if you wanna let folks know where they can find you, follow you, learn more about your work, um, or if you have any parting thoughts for the audience, anything that didn't come up that's you know top of mind for you that you'd like to put out there, uh, please take the next um, few minutes to do so. Well, basically, um, two things. First, I'm writing a book, finally, uh, on the indicators we use. The book will be available late this year, maybe early next year. And if you want to get a little bit of what I do, a lot of the secrets might be disclosed in that book. Secondly, uh, our company is MBA Advisors. Most of our clients are either institutions or, or uh, high net worth individuals or family offices. We can be reached by email at info at miltonberg.com. 
info at noltenberg.com, which is my name. We also have a um, website. The website is being revamped and updated. I think they still may be done in two or three weeks. And then you can go to the website and be easier to contact us on the website. I appreciate people listening. I, I think maybe some of the things I suggested may not be so conventional. Um, it's very difficult to put all this research in one hour interview. And uh, on the other hand, though, I try to do the best I can. I hope people uh, appreciate it and enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed sharing this with you, uh, Julia. Thank you. Well, Milton Burke, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Research at MB Advisors, we do thank you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. Milton Burke, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.